Let's open with a brief word of prayer before we get into our text. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminders that we will have through, through your word this morning. The reminders of the truths we've already had through the songs. Help us now to understand the text before us. Open our hearts, open our eyes to what you have for us. Help us to be sensitive to the, to the leading of the Spirit, how he is teaching us. Help me to speak clearly and concisely. And thank you for preserving your word for us and, and giving it to us in this way that we might continue to return to it know you better through knowing your word, how you've revealed yourself in your word. Help us to continue to trust you and obey where we should obey, as we need to obey, as we seek to be good disciples, and as we move forward as we continue to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to study. We're going to go through most of the chapter today, just because that is how it played out, and I didn't want to take too long going through this. Last time, we looked at the prophet's second question, his, his uh, second complaint uh, of what God is doing in verses um, 12 through... Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 12 of verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 1. Um, and now, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 2, we get the Lord's response. We get an initial uh, short response, and then he goes on as he, as he reveals what he will do with Babylon and how Babylon will be... Will not, not escape his judgment or his justice any more than Judah was going to. So we'll go ahead and begin here. Back to we're going to start. We're not going to read through all of the verses in one go. Um, we're going to start here in verses two through five, and we'll see the beginning of the Lord's answer. Then the Lord answered me and said, "Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run." Who reads it? For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Indeed, because he transgresses, transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. From verses 2 through 5, we see the Lord's answer. He's been answering Habakkuk's second complaint from the previous section that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And he tells Habakkuk 
be the prophet. Here is the word. Write it down. Here is what's going to be happening. Write it down. Make it plain. The idea of plain here is plain or easy. Uh, it, there's a little bit of... Uh, of Uh, interpretive differences here on this idea of that he may run who reads it. Okay, well, we're going to make it the, the, he's supposed to write the vision on the tablets and make it plain. We'll make it plain why. The answer is that he may run who reads it. Well, what is, what is the meaning here? Is it plain or easy so a messenger can understand it and go and proclaim it so that it could be, so that Habakkuk writes it on, on, several tablets or on several scrolls and sends out other messengers throughout the land to, to proclaim it so that they can understand it or that they can memorize it easily and go and proclaim it. Some think that it means to be plain or visible so that one who is running would be able to see it like a billboard. Here's, the, here's what the Lord is saying. You can see it even as you're running by. Uh, there's even the thought that it may be plain enough for one who is reading quickly, that they're running down the page, it would be quick and plain to them. Uh, there's also the idea that it would be plain so that the one who reads the visions would be warned and that they would flee. Those are kind of some of the ideas here. I kind of lean towards um, making it easily read as one who is going through it would, would see it um, very clearly, very visibly, and understand it, uh, or, or even that idea of having it posted somewhere that it's easy to see as that those who would read it would understand and would flee. God is ensuring, in verse 3, God ensures Habakkuk that what is in the vision that he's giving him in this revelation will happen. He says, there is an appointed time. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It may not be happening right now or right after I give you this vision, but it is coming. It will, it is not a lie, it will come to pass. And the judgment of Babylon that we're going to see here did come to pass. God used Babylon essentially to, to judge and remove Assyria. He used Babylon to judge Judah as a discipline tool for Judah. But he had promised the people that they would return to the land after 70 years. Which means Babylon needed to be taken care of too. He needed to work in a way to allow that, to, make, to ensure that happened. So Babylon will come to justice, but it may not happen for a while. Because remember, all of these visions, Habakkuk is written somewhere between 609 and 605 BC. That's the year that likely at the very end of the king of Josiah, uh, the reign of King Josiah, or near the beginning of King Jehoiakim, or maybe a little bit into his reign as he's seeing all these injustices and sinfulness of the people.
So not only is the judgment, is, and at that time frame, so not only is Israel's judgment coming, Judah's judgment coming, but Babylon's is even still further out and coming. It says time is going to pass, but to be patient it will come. It will come at the appointed time. And just like the disciples asked, Jesus, are you now setting up the kingdom? It says, that is for the Father in heaven to know. You worry about what you're going to do. The Father knows when that day is. We continue to trust in those promises. But he also goes on to tell, tell Habakkuk here, the beginning, and it's a little bit of getting into um, the judgment here, but in verse 4, there's a, this, uh, this wonderful verse of verse 4 comes out, and we see a contrast between the proud and the righteous. It says the proud are the ones that are puffed up, the one is, is not upright, they are ethically or morally wrong, they are not ethically or morally right. And that's in contrasted with the other part of the verse, those that are just, those that are righteous, and those that are just and righteous live faithfully, trusting or relying on God. It is not just that the just has faith, but it's also a matter of living faithfully and continually continuing to trust God, to rely on God. So it's not just a matter of, yes, I have faith, but that you live faithfully before God. The, that's the idea in that section there, in that verse there. This is a lifestyle of faith, and the faithfulness to God is opposite of those that are puffed up in their lives, those that are proud. This lifestyle of faith is resting in the resources of, the resources of God, such as the Word, rather than in one's own resources or strengths. Now in, in this verse, to live here, especially in this Old Testament, means to experience God's blessing by enjoying life, by enjoying a life of security and fullness. It's been said that faith is not believing in spite of evidence, it's but obeying in spite of the consequences. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but obeying in spite of the consequences. Now this precious clause of the last part of, of verse 4, but the just shall live by faith, is found three times in the New Testament. Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and, and is used, alluded to again in Hebrews 10.38. In these passages, that idea of will live or shall live is used more broadly than it is here in Habakkuk. The New Testament uses this clause when talking about enjoying salvation and eternal life. Warren Wiersbe remarks here that this is the first of three assurances given from God for encouragement in this, in this passage. This first one emphasizes God's grace, because grace and faith tend to go hand in hand. We'll see a little bit later, verse 14 is the second assurance, which emphasizes God's 
glory, reminding us that this world will not always be like this, but there will be a day when it will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And verse 20, the last verse of the chapter, is the third, and it emphasizes God's government. No matter the political situation, kingdoms and empires will rise and fall, but the Lord is still and will always be on his throne, ruling and overruling as the King of kings and Lord of lords. As we move on into verse 5, connected back kind of to the proud of verse 4, we go on. It says, Behold, the, uh, excuse me, indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man. The idea here is that wine is treacherous and it betrays those. It betrays especially the proud. And as we look back uh, historically, we see that Babylon was apparently very addicted to wine. And they were certainly addicted to their pride. Daniel 5 records how Belshazzar and his leaders, his court, were holding a very riotous party when not only did God warn them of their coming judgment, but that very night Babylon was conquered. And not only were they at a party, they were their party was becoming so riotous that Belshazzar pulled out the captured sacred vessels from the Lord's temple in Jerusalem to bring to their party to drink their wine to their gods. The verse verse five goes on to say to to give some comparisons of the pride of the proud and, and likely of Babylon. The proud are never satisfied. They're always greedy. And this is very easily drawn uh, comparison with, with Babylon. The proud are never satisfied and greedy, like, like death and the grave. Now, the New King James uses the word hell. Other translations are going to use the, are just going to transliterate the Hebrew word sheol. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily think the word is being used for the place of the dead, the abode of the dead. And that's why the King James and New King James translates it hell. I think it, because that word can also be used for grave. So like death, like the grave, the unrighteous, the puffed up, the proud, keep seeking more. They're never satisfied. And specifically, Proud Babylon continues, has been gobbling up nations and peoples. They're never quite satisfied with the size of their of their judgment, of their empire, of their kingdom. So this is the that's the initial answer that the Lord gives. And then in verses six through twenty, he continues, and what we have are five woes of judgment against Babylon. And in some ways, uh, you can almost draw parallels in some of these to not only Babylon alone, but you could even see some of these also being these woes going towards Judah during this time as well. But we see five woes of judgment. 
Now this, uh, if, if your Bible has this broken out in what, to where it gives the idea of prose, of a poem, or of a song, uh, it's kind of laid out that way. That's because it, it kind of is. It's kind of a... It's kind of a, a, a dirge of a song. It's kind of a taunting song towards Babylon, a little more specifically, where these woes are brought out. And we're going to start by looking at the first one in verses 6 to 8. So in verses 6 to 20, we have woes of judgment. And the first one is in verses 6 to 8, which is evil gain. Evil gain. Habakkuk is written, Will not all these take up a proverb against him, and a taunting riddle against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? Excuse me, will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. The first part of verse 6 refers back to the nations and the peoples uh, from the end of verse 5 that Babylon has been conquering. Will they not say, will they not take up this proverb and a taunting riddle against you? Those that were oppressed by them will use a enigmatic, a mysterious, <clears throat> a negative, these negative literary forms to condemn Babylon. They are ridiculing, mocking, taunting them in this mock, dirt-like song or proverb. The first of these five woes begins by referring to Babylon as one who has made himself rich on loans. He's made himself rich on loans. He has taken what is not his, and those he has robbed, essentially, view it as, you know, you may have taken this, but that's on loan. You have taken these under a pledge, and you will repay, under a pledge of repayment. Those oppressed will rise up and call the debt due and awaken those that cause Babylon to tremble. The nations that were subdued but not destroyed by Babylon will lead and plunder. That's the remnant of the people that is talked about here. Those that are not that were subdued but not destroyed will lead and plunder Babylon the way that they were plundered. Babylon used intimidation and strength and violence, and all of this is going to come back upon them. They ruthlessly shed much blood of many people, and they had ravaged lands and cities. Now it was going to be their turn. Now it will be their turn. 
So that's our first woe. That woe to those that make evil gain. And then in verses 9 to 11, we see the woe against self-exaltation. Self-exaltation. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered up from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples, and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Babylon sought to make itself important and safe. We're going to become a large empire, and we're going to we're going to control such a vast area that no one is going to want to attack us. We're going to be the strongest in the area, and because of it, no one's going to come to, come to get us. And the the uh, example, the illustration used is like that, like an eagle or or the uh, great bird of vultures building its nest high up on the mountaintops, away from predators. But building, being built on the mountaintops, being built on the precipices, on the edges, is still dangerous. Like those eagles that build their nests high in the mountaintops, Babylon uses this evil game that they have taken to build its empire from the lowlands of lower Mesopotamia. They built up their strength. This evil gain brought them their supposed power and prestige. They sought protection in their position. We're now the major power in the region. No one can touch us. Through their scheming, their plotting, their planning, their devising, to destroy other nations and peoples only brings them shame and ultimately death. Verses 9 and 10 are tied closely together as we see the repetition of the word house. Babylon's plan of national security was to isolate themselves from attack and danger, but this included the destruction, and this included the destruction of other peoples. Assyria is too dangerous. Crush them. Egypt is too dangerous to be in this region. Crush them and push them away. Judah's a nuisance. Crush them and bring them into submission. Of course, God sees this differently, and this Babylonian plan only brings on themselves the guilt and the wages of sin. Death. The wickedness of Babylon's actions and oppressiveness against and, and oppressiveness against those they conquered was witnessed not only by those they mistreated, but even the stones and the lumber of the houses, walls, palaces, and temples they built would act as witnesses. The Old Testament often uses inanimate objects, the earth or the cosmos even, as witnesses of sin and rebellion against God. This is found often in the prophets. This technique is used often to demonstrate the sin and the wickedness of human 
of humans and the concern of God for the oppressed. Isaiah 1, verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Micah, verses 6, 1 and 2, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says, Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Both of those, he has called the heavens, the cosmos, and earth. In Micah, he calls the mountains and the hills, the foundations of the earth, as witnesses against his judgments and his indictments against Israel. Jeremiah does something similar. Jeremiah, remember, is likely a contemporary of Habakkuk. And he gave a similar message from, from here to, from there to the wicked kings of Judah. In Jeremiah 22, verses 13 and 14, he says, Woe to him who builds his house of, by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages, who says, I will build myself a great house with a spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Jeremiah uses a similar woe, a similar statement of judgment against the kings and, and elite of Judah for the same thing that Habakkuk is calling against Babylon. These building materials were obtained for Babylon through the plunder and injustice against other, other nations and other peoples. So even they would be witness against them. These lavish buildings would serve as evidence for God's judgment that was coming. The nest that was exalted and built on a lofty perch would be knocked down. In verses 12 to 14, we see the third woe against iniquity. Iniquity. Woe to him who builds a town with bloodshed, who established a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This third woe changes the format of the previous two slightly. The previous ones would, ex would exclaim the sin that brought the woe, and the following verses then expanded and further exposed the sin. Here the sin is exclaimed first, but then attention is given to the Lord. This woe also encompasses the sin of the previous two. Everything that we've kind of talked about in the previous two is now included in the sin of and the woe of this one. The plunder and robbery of the first woe and the pride and self-exaltation of the second both grew from the inherent, inherent sin of the third. 
One source remarks here, it is as though the stones and timbers of Babylon's vast building projects took up the song here. It's as if the building, the stones and timbers that were just mentioned took up the song of woe against them. This woe exclaims how Babylon cities were built with bloodshed and iniquity. The word bloodshed here reinforces the idea that is inferred by bloodshed. It is used here, excuse me, uh, it refers to the violence committed, often implying murder. And it says iniquity reinforces that idea inferred by bloodshed, as it is used here reflecting violent deeds of injustice. Their cities were built by murder and violent unjust deeds. They were built through the blood and sweat of enslaved people. Babylon's tools were murder, bloodshed, oppression, and tyranny. Verse 13 actually implies a level of judgment against them as the Lord asks a rhetorical question here. Behold, is it not the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire and nations weary themselves in vain? All the labor of the building of those cities, the palaces, houses, is nothing. It will all be in vain. Babylon will fall. It is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord Almighty. This is Yahweh Sabaoth. He is sovereign of all creation, and he has declared this ambitious work as being done in These carefully hewn stones for the buildings and palaces, it is as if they become the stones of an altar, and those ornately carved timbers become the kindling for the great sacrificial fire that would reduce Babylon to ashes. These structures just feed the fire for their, of judgment for their sin. By contrast of Babylon, whose glory was in their might and lavish buildings that are nothing but kindling, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth. Habakkuk asked if God would punish the wicked or if evildoers would continue acting as with impunity. God answered Habakkuk, and not only was he to work his accomplish work to accomplish his own purpose, which was much more much more than simply punishing the wicked. God desires that all the world know him. Verse 14 here is very similar to Isaiah 11 and verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah spoke of the Messianic kingdom in, chapter, in Isaiah 11. And that section closes by saying, The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Habakkuk states that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. 
Isaiah spoke of the essence of the kingdom, presented the fact. Habakkuk dealt with the establishment of the kingdom and focused on the act. Habakkuk said, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. Isaiah said, this is what the kingdom is going to look like. Habakkuk said, this is, how, this is kind of how it's getting there. He's focusing on the establishment, the act, while Isaiah talked about the fact, the essence. There will be a day when the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord and the knowledge of his glory. And in the future, God will judge a future Babylon of some sort, from Revelation 17 and 18, and the ungodly powers of the earth, Revelation 19, verse 19, that, that are represented by Babylon. And in the millennial kingdom, the Lord's glory, Matthew 24, and majesty, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, will be made evident and acknowledged throughout the earth. This knowledge of the Lord and his glory will be so extensive that it will be as the waters that are covering the sea. Verses 15 to 17, we take a turn and we see the next woe. The woe against drunken violence. Drunken violence. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame <clears throat> instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. For the, for the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid. Because of men's bloods and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. This woe turns to the barbaric actions of Babylon and the indignity and inhumanity they exhibit towards their victims. This verse sees Babylon as a drunk giving or inciting his neighbors to have, this, to, to have some with him to get him drunk, to have him get to get him drunk, so that they would also indulge in the, some evil or in the same evil, and thus exposing his neighbor to shame. Verse fifteen in the ESV reads it this way: "Woe to him who makes his neighbor drink! You pour out your wrath and make him drunk." in order to gaze at their nakedness. The Nazvi reads it this way, Woe to you who make his neighbors, neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look at on their nakedness. The alternative readings there in VSV and the New American Standard imply that Babylon was giving more than just wine to his neighbor. He was giving a mixed drink they were giving wrath or venom. They were enticing or often forcing others to partake in Babylon's venomous wine. And then the, the illustrations that they fell drunk and lay in shame 
and and being subjugated. This picture adds. This picture is the adding of lust to drunkenness, which can bring which can bring to mind the shameful event of Genesis nine twenty one to twenty five, involving Noah and his sons. Verse 16 immediately speaks to the coming judgment of the sinful acts of verse 15. As they force their neighbors to be drunk and fall exposed in the shame for their own glory, quote-unquote, soon they will be drunk and fall and be exposed as uncircumcised. Now to the Jew, being uncircumcised was to be scorned. As Babylon forced their neighbors to drink from their cup, the Lord will make Babylon drink from his cup. The cup that is in his right hand. Often the cup pictures judgment, and the right hand pictures strength and power. Thus, this part of the verse pictures the coming judgment, the divine retribution against Babylon for its actions. The end of the verse pictures Babylon also, excuse me, it pictures Babylon as a disgraceful, contemptible drunk. Verse 17 gives an example of Babylon's wanton exploitation and ravaging of the nations for its own selfish desire for glory. Lebanon had long been known for its thick cedar forests and abundant wildlife of the Lebanon mountain range. Babylon manipulated and overran nations, stripping resources. Babylon had ruthlessly taken from the forests of Lebanon for their buildings, and it seems that there was rampant, destructive slaughter of the wildlife of the forests. But the greater sin was that of human bloodshed. This charge has been leveled against them twice already in verse 8 and in verse 12. And the second half of verse 17 is actually the same that we read at the end of verse 8. Not only did Babylon decimate the forests and ravage the hillsides, but they ruined lands and cities and everyone in them. One source remarks the indignities on God's creation and his creatures would bring Babylon from apparent world glory to everlasting shame. God's great judgment would overwhelm her. And then in verses 18 to 20, we see the woe against idolatry. The woe against idolatry. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it? The molded image, the teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it, to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in, in it there is no breath at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
this final stanza of this song does not begin with the woe as, as the others do, but with another rhetorical question. What profit is the image, the molded image? What profit is it to make mute idols? Now the word image at the opening of the verse refers to a carved idol of wood or an idol hewn from stone. The molded image refers to metal being cast and formed. The answer is obvious to the, to the question above. These idols give no benefit. However beautiful or ornate the items, they are just wood, stone, or metal. Thus, thus trusting in one is as to treat, trust a teacher of lies, as people are deceived and deluded, thinking it can help them. I've said before, idols don't need to be carved images of some false god. An idol can be anything. An idol is anything that replaces God in your heart. Verse 19 brings the woe against this sin of idolatry. Idols have no value to the worshiper. It is pointless and foolish to expect the wood to wake up or the stone to arise. And just because a lifeless object is covered in gold or silver does not give the object life or spirit. Those that make and worship speechless, worthless objects of man's carvings rather than the Creator Himself will face the woe, the distress of God's condemnation. But verse 20 closes in contrast to verses 18 and 20 and shifts again the focus to the Lord. The contrast is set off with the conjunction, but, but the Lord is in His holy temple. But Yahweh is in His temple. The ever-living one, the everlasting one, the one who has no beginning or end, the eternal living one. He is in his temple. The verse shifts from the speechless, lifeless, man-made carvings and idols to the Lord, the living God, the eternal, self-existent, holy Sovereign, ruler of all creation, sitting in his temple. Temp the temple uh, reference here likely refers to the throne room of heaven. It, this is used in varying places in Psalm 11, verse 4, Psalm 18, verses 6 and 9, and even Micah 1, verses 2 and 3, refers where that the temple idea is the throne room of heaven. And because we shift now to the Lord, instead of, of needing to call, arise, or awake to the Lord, this brings to mind the prophets of Baal being taunted by Elijah in, in 1 Kings 18. But instead of, of having to call, arise, or awake to the Lord, the earth and everything in it must be silent before Him. 
Habakkuk gets it. Stop complaining. Take a breath. Stop doubting. Trust the Lord. He is not insensitive. He is not unaware or un, or inactive. The Lord is in control. The Lord is ruling. He will accomplish His divine purpose in His time. Habakkuk learned to be silent and to keep trusting the Lord. This verse then will make the connection from this chapter into Habakkuk's psalm that is recorded in the next chapter where he responds and, and prays to the Lord. Chapters 1 and 2 in Habakkuk see a lot of back and forth, bringing questions and complaints, having, having doubts, and being responded to by the Lord. Receiving the word of the Lord and, and turning and placing trust and praise in Him. We can bring our concerns, our questions, even complaints to God. It's okay. But at some point we need to stop and like Habakkuk, stand our watch. We need to remain or return to the word for counsel. Continue to express our faith in the Lord through our prayers, actions, and worship. While joyous worship can be difficult or maybe even feel fake when we have questions or we are going through a season of doubt or trial, we can still worship through the psalms of lament and even quieter, more solemn hymns of faith. Songs like that we've been we've sung over the last few weeks during this study, and even some of the ones that we sung this morning. It's okay to If God is not big enough to take your complaints and your sins, you're not trusting in God. There are a few resources on working through a lament during a difficult season. Resources like the book uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Mark Broglap where the reader learns about and how to lament and pour their feelings and questions out to God through biblical examples. Or the personal reflections of Christian author and blogger Tim Challey in Seasons of Sorrow. But the point of these resources is to help guide as we question or even complain to end and trust and faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. 
have faith in God, rest faithfully in his word and promises. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, while this is a heavy topic and a heavy chapter, so thankful for the mercy and grace that you've shown. By placing this book in the can. That we have an example of bringing questions, of bringing complaints. seeing the example of, of returning to prayer and waiting on the word, waiting on your word to help us through. And while we may never know in this life that trials for our trials before other than to help conform us to the Christ. We may never know behind the things we do. you are faithful and you will do what all that you have said father we love you we praise you we ask for your strength and we pray these things in the name of your son and our savior jesus christ amen